This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For many of us that follow the moves made by the U.S. government to improve our economy, seeing the ideas that are put forth are one of the interesting areas to follow. A new uh, book by Kate Raworth is a senior research associate at Oxford and also a senior associate at the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership, wants to challenge some of the decades-old thinking and develop new patterns for economic growth for the future. And in the process, we may be able to improve our world a little bit as well. The book is titled Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. Kate joins us right now, as does Steve Sharetta, who's in the studio with me. Steve, the senior managing editor for the Knowledge at Wharton website. Steve, great seeing you again. You Thanks. too, Dan. Kate, great to have you with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. So I, I wanted to start off and because in this world we live in, it feels like there are new ideas on so many different things each and every day. So what is the problem when we're thinking about economies and growth and, and economics in general? Well, you say there are new ideas on each and everything every day, and there are, especially in technology and biology, and so many fields are evolving so fast. But if you're a student going to university to study economics today, and you're going to, if you do that, you are going to be one of the policy leaders, one of the thinkers of the 21st century, you know, shaping this world in 2050. But I believe that the students today are still being taught economics that comes out of the textbooks of 1950, based on the theories of 1850. And given the challenges of the 21st century, from climate change to extreme inequality to repeated financial crises, this is shaping up to be a disaster. Hi, Kate. This is Steve. Um, your book it really is this mountaintop view of the world. It's very interesting. Uh, you talk about what are the big themes, what's right about them, what's wrong. And one central idea that you have in there uh, challenges the very concept of growth, meaning the basic measure of GDP growth, uh, as an ineffective way to measure uh, an economy because uh, it's only one-dimensional. It's a one-dimensional measure, and you're pointing out, I think, that, uh, in fact, economies are three-dimensional, and so there's so many things uh, ignored by that one measure. Could you talk about that concept of GDP growth as being an inadequate measure? Sure. Well, I feel so sorry for Simon Kuznets, because back in the 1930s, <laughs> he was asked by U.S. Congress to come up with a measure of national income. And he did a fantastic job, and he came up with this measure, which we now know as GDP. But at the time when he created it, he gave us a caveat. He said, you know, this measure should in no way be mistaken for a measure of a nation's welfare. Did we listen? No. Because Kuznets said it doesn't include all the incredible, valuable, unpaid, caring work of parents, all that cooking, washing, sweeping, cleaning, raising the kids that's done every day. It doesn't include the value of communities and the things that communities produce and do for each other that doesn't show up in the national economy. And it's just a flow measure. We've got to also look at the stocks, what's happening to the underlying financial capital, but also natural and social and human capital. So he saw this was a very thin measure, gave us the caveat, it got ignored, because there's nothing like the temptation of a single number for policymakers to latch onto. And when you can measure one country's growth over years, but also compare it to other countries, then you're in some sort of competition that we've not been able to let go of for over 80 years. So it's just too narrow a measure. And I think we've become addicted over those 80 years to this Peter Pan idea that an economy is doing better if it's always growing. We need to ask ourselves three questions. Growth from what? 
Is, it, is the economy growing because we're making a huge investment in a transition to renewable energies, like China investing $360 billion by 2020 in solar energy capacity? That's a great reason for GDP in China to grow. Or is it growing because actually we've got massive consumer debt spending on mortgages we can't afford and cars we don't need? That is not a great reason for GDP to grow. Second, growth for whom? Is, is GDP growing because the top 1% are reaping the returns as, as they have been doing in recent years? Or is GDP growing because income is going to people who live below the poverty line and it's enabling them for the first time in their lives to meet life's essentials? And then thirdly, growth until when? If, growth, if GDP is growing for good reasons, something's growing, then at what point will it have reached its optimal size so that we grow into thriving balance like everything in nature does? How much solar energy capacity do we need until we can make the most of what the sunshine offers us? How much should we be investing in, say, expanding schools and investing in teachers so that every kid has a good start in life? So in nature, everything grows until it reaches its optimal size. We should ask those same kinds of questions in our economies, too. There's another, I think, idea that's inherent in, in your book when it comes to the idea of GDP growth and why it's inadequate. So, I mean, an example I've heard, which is pretty interesting, is if you, if you picture someone stuck in traffic, right? They're stuck in traffic for an hour. What's going on as far as GDP is concerned? They're burning up gasoline. This is very positive, right? This is causing GDP to go up. But there's no measure taken of the person's time that's lost in traffic, of the pollutants being put out, which are going to cause health care uh, costs, let's say, to go up, or the, the carbons that are being put out that are going to mm-hmm. make climate change worse. And so we seem to measure only... Uh, I mean, you're saying in, in many cases it's not always positive, but even to the effect that we're just measuring the positive part, we're not taking into account the cost. So it seems like that's the balance that you're kind of going for. Right, and because GDP essentially only measures things that carry a price. And everything else, all those other things that you described, uh, pollution to the local cyclists who are breathing in the fumes, pollution to the global atmosphere, these in economics, of course, are called externalities because they fall outside of the market transaction. Well, if you're going to call impacts on the living world and the health of people an externality, you've already told me how important you think it isn't. And that's the way that economics has been framed. It's framed the living world, and in fact, much of what ensures our well-being, because it falls outside the market, because there's so much more to life than the market, it gets called an externality. That's a fundamental problem of the way economics has been framed. If we don't bring the living world and communities into how we understand managing our household in the 21st century, because that's what economics means, managing the household, we don't give ourselves a chance of thriving. So just to connect back to the example I was giving, uh, I, I noted one statistic recently that talked about air pollution data. This is a study from MIT about two years ago or three years ago, which noted that uh, in the U.S. alone, Uh, some 200,000 people die prematurely from air pollution. Hmm. And when they say die prematurely, they mean they're dying 10 years before they should. So no one's accounting for that. No one's, no, and and that doesn't count their healthcare bills leading up to their death and so forth and so on. So it seems like this is inherent in in the thread that you, that you weave through your book, this idea of, of only looking at one side. Yeah, and, and so often, even when people do try to take these things into account, what they would do is sometimes come up with a statistic that says, for example, if people are dying 10 years younger, how much of their working life is lost? Sometimes they'll even try and say, we're losing their contribution to GDP. And it, it, it's a topsy-turvy world in which sometimes we try and justify the most valuable things in life, like health and well-being, in terms of 
uh, we're losing out on people's ability to contribute to the economy. And then we realize we've got a situation where human well-being is apparently in service to the economy, where, of course, we need to turn that around. The economy and certainly the financial sector should be in service to life. So we need to reframe it. And I think that's partly why we need new statistics, new data, new metrics that take away this concentration on everything being expressed in terms of money and what it does for our economy and look at natural metrics about people's length of their lives and the health of their lives, the health of the living world that we survive upon around us. We need to measure it in their own terms, life expectancy, people's well-being, the stability of the climate, the health of the soils, the health of the ocean, not monetizing everything. We are joined uh, on the phone by uh, Kate Rayworth, who is the uh, author of the book Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. Kate joining us on the phone, Steve Charetta in studio with me, talking to uh, with her about uh, her book. Uh, I wanted to get your opinion as well, um, since it's a relatively recent occurrence. Uh, you talk about the fact that the, the, the recession that we went through several years ago really could have been more of a wake-up call. Uh, for thinking about uh, the economies and, and economic growth around the world, correct? Yes, uh, because, of course, it shook the global economy, but it also shook the confidence of economists. And certainly in the UK, where I come from, the Queen asked the economists at the London School of Economics, why did nobody see it coming? And, right. and everybody ran scampering for answers. You've got to be able to answer the Queen. Um, And, of course, they didn't see it coming because it wasn't written into the models. The inherent instability wasn't reflected in the models. In fact, even the Bank of England and all students were being taught a model of economics that didn't reflect accurately where money comes from. And it didn't reflect accurately the, the interconnection and, therefore, the vulnerability of the banking network. So they weren't taking a systems view or a complexity view of the economy. This did shake up economics. My concern is it just shook up economics to respond to the financial problems. So we have the beginnings of, say, the, the Institute of New Economic Thinking. We have lots of people saying it's time for new economics. But I worry that too much of that has been concerned about. We need to do new economic thinking so that we get finance right. What about bringing in the living world? What about bringing in human well-being? So we need just not a rethinking financial economics. We've got to bring in ecological and feminist and behavioral and complexity economics. And the wonderful thing is that when you bring in these other perspectives, it gets so more, so much more interesting. It gets so much more grounded reality. And young people who signed up to study economics, their eyes light up because they say, now I feel I'm actually studying the world around me. This makes sense to me. I feel like I'm getting an education that will equip me for the future that I can see is coming. But I, I hate to be a little bit of the wet blanket here, though. I mean, with all of that stuff, if you can really develop it, which is fantastic – but if you get to that point, then you still have the hurdle, which we've talked about on this show, of trying to get a lot of this stuff moved through. And to a degree, I think it gets blocked by, by the people in politics in this country and other, in other parts around the world. I think that's right. Um, and I, So when you bring in a new language and a new framing of the world, of course you run into barriers. And then we get into the really interesting place of the political resistance to paradigm change. Right When Copernicus realized that the, world, the universe did not move around an unmoving Earth. He realized that the sun was at the center of the universe, uh, of, of our solar system anyway. The Catholic Church spent centuries refusing to listen to what he said. So paradigm change is very, very threatening for those who are benefiting from the current state of the way things are, whether it's politicians, but I think particularly companies and financial power who benefit from 
excluding the living world from our concerns, excluding people's health and, and leaving things, these things as externalities. So I think as citizens and as people who are smart to the challenges ahead of us in the 21st century, it's our responsibility to start speaking in a new language and to reframe the economy in a way that actually takes care of 21st century concerns. And that's what so many students around the world are doing. The, the great irony being that economics has managed to rile its very student body, the people who signed up with debt and years of their life to study theories of economics are turning around and critiquing what they're being taught because they know it's not equipping them for the future. So we've got to transform the teaching of economics in universities and schools, but also create a language that politicians can actually start to use, that they feel comfortable to start using alternative language. So it is a responsibility on those of us advocating new economics to help put it in a language that makes sense to publics and politicians can start to use. Uh, Kate, what would it look like to make major changes in the economy the way that you suggest? You mentioned in your book sectoral transitions um, and did some pretty strong medicine, including, uh, I'm going to quote a little bit from the book, strong contractions of industries such as mining, oil and gas, industrial livestock production, demolition and landfill, and speculative finance. It's it's a tall order, and it would devastate a lot of livelihoods, and there would have to be a, a big transition period, and there would be winners and losers, and somehow those the losers would have to be taken care of, whether that's retraining or whatever it might be. So I'm, I'm, I'd love to hear how that would all work. That's absolutely right. There are winners and losers in the economy every day, and there are winners and losers from the massive technological shifts that are going on right now. So all the time the economy is evolving, we just need to ask ourselves, what is the purpose of the economy and what direction do we want it to evolve in? I think there are two principles that we need to put at the heart of a 21st century economy that actually has a chance of meeting the needs of all within the means of the planet. The first is to create an economy that's distributive by design. By that I mean an economy in which value that's created, the, the benefits of that value is shared far more equitably with everyone who helps to create it. Think employee-owned company where the profits created by the company are shared amongst all of those who help create that value, rather than always a shareholder-owned company where the, the profits go off to fickle and often distant shareholders who never even set, set foot in the premises. So we need economies that are distributive by design, but they also need to be regenerative by design, by which I mean we need to think about our relationship to the living world on which we depend. So we need to create industries that use resources again and again and again, rather than using them up. We shouldn't be landfilling plastic. We should recognize it's an extraordinarily rare and valuable resource that we need to be smart and innovative in using again and again. Now, as we go on that path to making economies that are distributive and regenerative by design, that creates so many jobs, right? In the U.S., there are four times more jobs in renewable industries than there are in the mining industry. So we need to look to that future, find ways of creating jobs there. And of course, you have to look for the, the, those who are losing in transition, because people are always losing in transition, and, and work with them. But it's not a good enough reason to resist the transition that we know will be good for everybody in the end. Uh, that one example you gave about the plastics and reusing them, that it's an interesting one, because that's, 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 being, that's starting to get done, uh, more so in Europe, I think, than in the U.S. But even in the U.S., we're working to try and make progress on that. Uh, and what tends to lead those kinds of changes is that people find that it can be cheaper to do things that way. It can, be, it, can, it can increase profits if you can find a way to cut costs. And so to the extent you can do that, it works. But a lot of these other things are, are a little bit more difficult. And I'm wondering if you have any 
suggestions of how the political and sort of lobbying efforts that would be lodged against these kinds of moves, uh, how, how they would be challenged or what, what might work to help, help uh, move things along in the direction you'd like to see it go. Right. So on the plastics, let's stick with that example for a moment. Some governments around the world, particularly countries that have a tourist sector and are famed for their beautiful beaches, for their beautiful villages, are realizing that by allowing plastics to accumulate, they have destroyed the very assets for which people have come to visit their country. And so the government smartly says, we ban the use of plastic bags. We ban the use of single plastics. Um, so what you need is smart governmental regulation that gives a long, legal, and a loud signal to industry saying, you know, within five or ten years' time or whatever that time frame is, this is going to be banned so that industrialists know well in advance and they can start planning it for it right now. And, of course, the beautiful thing is that once that message is in place, surprise, surprise, industry just adapts because once the signal is there, the incentives are clear, the change in market price is clear over time, they just move to work with it. So sometimes it comes top-down, as it were, from the government, but sometimes it comes bottom-up from people. The, the citizens' pressure saying, this, we're just disgusted and we've had enough, and they, they refuse plastic bags and shopping. It comes from a citizens' pressure. We need those two things to work together because the power of lobbying to resist either of those, the lobby power of gov companies putting money in government pockets to prevent them from making changes, is so strong that we need to get that corporate money out of politics, return it to the democratic space, but also enable people and governments to shift the economy in the right direction. And, of course, there are many companies also desperately trying to move in that right direction because there are many good people working with a progressive vision who want to make companies be part of the progressive future. So we need to work with those progressive companies and help them to convince governments that they should move forward with the progressives rather than being held back by the money of those who were benefiting from the situation as it is. So the, do you think, Kate, then, uh, when you think about the United States for a second, do you think, uh, and I, I guess this could be the case in, in a lot of places around the around the world, uh, that as, as millennials get a little bit older and Gen Z, I guess, is the next, uh, uh, the next group a after that, as those people get older and they take more leadership positions, not only in corporations, but but uh, in government as well, we'll be able to see a lot of this change really start to be affected. Well, I hope we will, but I really worry because they are still being taught economics out of yeah. 1950s textbooks. Let yeah. me give you one example. If you say to an economist, show me the biggest picture you have of the economy, right? The economics means household management. So show me the household, show me the whole thing. The picture they can show you was drawn by Paul Samuelson in 1948, and economists call it the circular flow diagram. And what it shows is how money goes around around the economy between households and business, flows through government, it throws through the finance sector, and it goes through trade. Absolutely no mention of the living world. No mention of the unpaid, unpaid worker parents. No mention of the commons, which are being so dynamic, particularly the digital commons. Students are still having that mindset, that image of what the economy is, put in their heads by the textbooks. If we don't equip them with the mental imagery, with the language and the frameworks that help them see the, the whole 21st century, we are massively undermining future leaders. So I'm actually really concerned that they are not getting this education yet. So you'd like to replace it with a picture of a donut, I think. Is that right? Well, I like so, so the donut gives us purpose, right? So the donut, the kind with the hole in the middle, the kind that you guys eat here. Yeah. In the hole in the middle is a space where people are falling short on life's essentials, be it food and water, health care political voice. And we've got to get everybody out of that hole in the donut. But we mustn't go over the outer crust, because there we're overshooting pressure on the planet, causing climate change, biodiversity loss, acidifying the oceans. 
So our well-being lies in personal health, but also planetary health, the space within the donut itself. No one falling short, and we're not overshooting. The picture I'd actually like to put in the textbooks, though, if I, if I could shape, you know, what's the first picture you'd ever show a brand-new student of economics? I'd show them a, a diagram that's in my book that I call the embedded economy, and it shows the economy embedded in society, embedded in the living world. So we already recognize the economy is a dependent subsystem of society and the world, but also that the economy has four essential provisioning sectors. Yes, it's got the market, and yes, it's got the state. They dominated some kind of 20th century ideological boxing match. And in that domination, they squeezed out the household, the space of unpaid caring work, where we all begin every day, but also the commons, which has been told, we were told since the 60s it was tragic, right? The tragedy of the commons, every economic student learns about that. Eleanor Ostrom has made clear, actually, under the right conditions and governance, you can have a triumph of the commons. And I think every student should learn there are four fundamental forms of provisioning through market exchange, through the state providing public goods, through household unpaid care in households and communities, and the self-organizing without market or state in the commons. And almost any good that you care to think of can be provided in any one of those four ways. Then you've got a much more interesting start saying, when is each of these provisioning systems actually the best way? How can they work together, the commons and the market, the commons and the state, the market and the state, to produce really innovative business models for the 21st century? Okay, we've got, uh, that start, they will come up with such better innovations for this century. We've got just a couple minutes left. I wanted to ask, is there anywhere in the world where that kind of system is working? Is there a country that's far along the path or even a city or a region uh, that, that could serve as some kind of a model? Or maybe it's an industry or maybe it's a company. Great question. So... What excites me is when I get contacted by companies and by cities that say, we love this donut because it gives us a blueprint for where we want to get to. So I was contacted by some urban developers, Stockholm. They're developing a new district of Stockholm. They said, we want to create the world's most livable city district. How do we meet the needs of all the residents for food and water and health care and transport and energy within the means of the planet, respecting the ecosystem within which it's nested? I've also got contacted by people in South Africa, KwaZulu-Natal, the fastest-growing town there, saying we've used this to re-envision the future for our town. And the youth in the city said we want to add in fun because it's got to be fun transforming your economy. Also, companies from Mars to Patagonia have said to me, we are using this to rethink our strategy. We know we're not in the donut yet, but at last it gives us a compass for asking ourselves, how do we ensure that the way that we do business and make profit is helping humanity move into that safe and just space rather than pushing us out of it? Because we need those models to, to you know, demonstrate that this kind of thing can work. Are there any countries that are, that are thinking this way? So like above the city level, for example? I can't name a country yet because yep. I've only just launched this book and I'm only mm -hmm. just beginning these conversations. But I'm getting interest and I will let you know. I, I wouldn't want to name a country before I could give it the, the donut stamp of approval. But I can see there's interest because governments are struggling to mm -hmm. find a vision of the future that actually makes sense to publics. The, the growth horse, I think, is yeah. beaten to a flank. We need a new vision of a regenerative and distributive economy. Thanks, Kate. Greatly appreciate your time. Fantastic book. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. It is Donut Economics. Kate, uh, Kate Rayworth is the author. It's available in bookstores and online now. Thank you, Steve. Good to see you again. My pleasure. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.